I'm reading to you tonight from Matthew the 5th chapter beginning with verse 1. And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the same as the first beatitude. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. As you detected, of course, this, these words were taken from the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon that Jesus Christ preached on the Mount is a blueprint for man's happiness. A blueprint to tell a man how to live, how to conduct himself, that he may receive the blessings of God. This was the greatest sermon ever preached in any age of the world. In its profundity, in its simplicity, in its majestic sweep, in its practical bearing upon life, it stands unopposed by anything that man has ever written or anything that man has ever spoken. And if the world should be standing 10,000 years from tonight, man will never write anything or speak anything comparable to the Sermon on the Mount. If you observe that in every beatitude that Christ spoke, there was a reward offered. Notice, blessed are the poor in spirit. What's the reward? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. What's the reward? They should be comforted. Blessed are the meek. What's the reward? They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. What's the reward? They shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. What's the reward? They shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. What's the reward? They shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. What's the reward? They shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they that are persecuted. The same as the first reward. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If there were no other rewards offered anywhere in the Bible, these would be enough to encourage every person to want to live a faithful, dedicated Christian life. And these rewards are offered to encourage us. But these are not the only rewards offered in the Bible to those who faithfully serve God. These were taken from the first book of the New Testament. Then we'll return to the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. 
It's interesting to observe that to every church that John wrote in Asia Minor, there was a reward offered to every church where the members were found faithful. When he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he said to him that overcometh the same shall be given eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. What a reward. When he wrote to the church at Smyrna, he said to him that overcometh the same shall not be hurt of the second death. When he wrote to the church at Pergamos, he said to him that overcometh the same shall be given to eat of the hidden manna. He shall be given a white stone, and on this stone written a name, a name that no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. When he wrote to the church at Thyatira, he said to him that overcometh the same shall be given power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and as the vessel of the potter is broken to shivers, even as I have received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. When he wrote to the church at Sardis, he said to him that overcometh the saints shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess him before my father and before the angels. When he wrote to the church at Philadelphia, he said to him that overcometh, the same shall be made a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall no more go out. I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that cometh down from God out of heaven. I'll write upon him my new name. When he wrote to the church of Laodicea, he said to him that overcometh, I will give to sit with me in my throne even as I have overcome and have sat down with my father in his throne. So to every church he wrote, there was a reward offered. If you observe these rewards that were offered when writing to the church at Asia Minor, they were progressive in nature, starting out with the Garden of Eden. When he spoke of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, that did, was not destroyed, but only disappeared, and is now in the presence of God. When he wrote to the church of Smyrna, he reminds us of that second death that will pronounce upon everyone that disobeys God. And the righteous people who will not, of course, endure this second death. When he wrote to the church at, at Pergamos, reminds us of the manna that God sent down from heaven to feed the children of Israel while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. When he wrote to the church at Thyatira and talked about power be given to these people, reminds us of the victors of God's people when they held high the rod of God. When he wrote to the church at Sardis and talked about those white garments, reminds us of the time that when the priests would go about their duties, and possibly of all the promises that God has made, the most beautiful promise of all is when he wrote to the church of Sardis. When he said to those who were faithful, those who lived the Christian life, those who remained faithful in the end, Jesus Christ said, I will take him and confess him before my Father. And then call all the angels of heaven and confess his name before the angels. What a reward and what a blessing. When he talked about uh, writing to the church at Philadelphia and talked about the pillar reminds us of Solomon's temple. When he talked about the throne and writing to the church at Laodicea reminds us of the throne of Solomon. So all of those rewards were progressive in nature. But the question is, uh, who to whom will these rewards be given? Obviously, not to everybody. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Second Peter, the first chapter and verse 4 of one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. 
I want you to either mark it in your Bible or either mark it uh, in your mind that you may be able to recall this verse. If you remember when Peter wrote to the church, writing to these people, he said, Whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. I want you to notice the word nature in this verse. That Peter says that we become partakers of this divine nature that we may be able to overcome the corruption that's in the world. There isn't any person strong enough, wise enough, or smart enough to overcome the temptations of this life, the corruption that's in the world, without becoming a partaker of this divine nature. Now, when we become partaker of this divine nature, it does not mean that we become deity, that is, we do not become omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent, but these are moral attributes such as goodness, kindness, godliness, and forgiveness. And Peter says that we become partakers of this nature that we may be able to overcome the corruption that's in the world. Nature is one of the most powerful things in the world. For instance, nature controls appetite. I was reared on a farm. On this farm, we, we had animals. We all had hogs. We'd feed the hogs what we call slop, that is, which would not eat ourselves or throw away. But on this same farm, we had sheep. And sheep would eat grass beside the still water. Now the question is, why did the sheep eat grass and the hogs eat slop? It was a nature of a hog to eat slop. It was a nature of a sheep to eat grass. Each one is being controlled by nature. For instance, vultures feed on things that are rotten and things that are decayed. The hummingbird eats the nectar from the flowers. Why? Each one is being controlled by nature. Just as you're controlled by nature, I'm controlled by nature. That's the reason Peter said that we're to become protectors of the divine nature because nature is a powerful thing. For instance, if an individual becomes a protector of the nature of Satan, he's going to act like Satan, talk like Satan, think like Satan, and live like Satan because he has become a protector of this nature. That has become his nature to do that. But it's the nature of Satan. If an individual becomes a partaker of the nature of Christ, he's going to act like Christ, think like Christ, talk like Christ, and live like Christ. Why? Because he has become a partaker of this nature. Each one is being controlled by nature. Nature not only controls appetite, nature controls behavior. For instance, uh, the dolphin swims, but the eagle flies high in the sky. Now, why does the eagle fly? It's the nature of an eagle to fly. Why does the dolphin swim? That's the nature of a dolphin to swim. Each one is being controlled by nature, just as you're controlled by nature. And I'm controlled by nature. It depends upon the nature that we're protectors of and live in the Christian life. Nature not only controls behavior, nature also controls the um, environment. For instance, squirrels climb trees. Moles burrow through the ground. If you've ever observed, mostly through your yard if you're trying to keep a nice yard. Well, why does a mole do that? That's the nature of a mole to burrow through the ground. It's nature of a squirrel to climb trees. Now question, why doesn't the squirrel more uh, burrow through the ground? That's not the nature of a squirrel to do that. It's the nature of a squirrel to climb trees. Nature of the mole to burrow through the ground. Each one is being controlled by nature. Nature not, not only controls the uh, environment, 
Nature also controls association. For instance, fish swim in schools. Sheep go in flocks. Ants go in colonies. Now question, why do ants travel in colonies? That's the nature of ants. Why do sheep go in flocks? That's the nature of, of sheep. Why do fish swim in schools? That's the nature of fish. Each one is being controlled by nature. But those who study animal life tell us that the leopard travels alone. And the only time they get together is when they mate. Then they go their separate ways. Why? Because each one is being controlled by nature. Nature is a powerful thing. And just as sure as you're listening to me, nature controls your life. If you are a partaker of the nature of Christ, you're going to act like Christ, think like Christ, and speak like Christ, and live like Christ. And if you become a partaker of the nature of Satan, you're going to act like Satan. Therefore, the apostle Peter said, let us become partakers of the divine nature why, Peter? He said that we may be able to escape the corruption that's in the world. That's why we become protectors of this divine nature. And that's why everyone should think seriously about the nature that he is practicing. When we become protectors of this divine nature, we must identify with Jesus Christ. One cannot become a protector of the nature of Christ without identifying with Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you in all seriousness, do you honestly and seriously believe that you can identify with Jesus Christ? I want to believe that most of you can. For instance, we must identify with, them, with the works of Jesus. In John the ninth chapter, verse 4, Jesus Christ said, I must work while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. Well, that just simply means this, that even the Son of God realized that there was coming a time in his life when he could not carry out his father's work on this earth. And there's coming a time in your life, in my life, when we cannot invite people to gospel meetings. There's coming a time when we cannot attend a gospel meeting. There's coming a time where we cannot extend invitations to people. There's coming a time when we cannot talk to people about their soul salvation. And we must realize this. Therefore, even Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, said that he realized there was a time coming when he could no longer work upon this earth. And that time is coming in your life and in my life. And this being true, then we should take advantage of every opportunity that's possible for us to promote the kingdom of God. In fact, we should take, take advantage of every opportunity to promote every good work to the very best of our lives. Why? Because the time is coming when we cannot work. And every member of the church needs to realize that. When we talk about members of the church not attending service on Sunday night or Wednesday night or not out doing personal work, we need to impress upon the minds of these people. There's coming a time when you cannot do this. I remember several years ago <clears throat> going to see a friend of mine who was dying with a dreaded disease. And I shall never forget what he said to me. He said, you know, the thing I regret most of all, that when I was younger, I did not take the opportunity to do those things that were right. How many will come to the end of life's way saying, I regret, I regret that I not take the advantage of the opportunities that I had. You just think what every congregation would be throughout the brotherhood if every member of the congregation could realize that there's a time coming when I will not have the opportunity to serve God in this life. And John the fourth chapter, verse 34, Jesus Christ said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. 
Jesus Christ always filled the imperative call of duty. And I've been preaching a long time, and I've worked with a lot of brethren, but there's one thing I've learned in life. I've learned that until a member of the church feels the imperative of duty, that man will never be worth a thing on God's earth to the, to the Lord's cause. We must realize that the responsibility resting upon us. And Jesus said, I must work. Why, Jesus? He says, the time is coming when I cannot do it. This is my meat. What is this? To do the will of my Father. In Luke, the second chapter, when, G when the parents of Jesus took him up to Jerusalem for to worship, after they had fulfilled their duties there, they started home and traveled for a day's journey. When the evening shadows began to lengthen and darkness closing in, then Mary became concerned over the presence of her son. He was not with them. And she no doubt went to her relatives, to her friends, and to her neighbors. He cannot be found there. And so she and her husband traveled another day's journey back to Jerusalem. And when they found Jesus, he was in the temple discussing the law with the learned people of that city. And she said to him, How is it that, that your father and I have sought thee sorrowing? How is it that you've dealt with us? Why have you done this? And Jesus Christ replied, Know ye not that I must be about my father's business? At the tender age of 12, Jesus Christ felt the imperative call of duty that he must be about his father's business. And I don't know, but I've often wondered if it were possible for those brethren in Laodicea to be resurrected from the dead and come back to the earth today and to visit many of our congregations if they wouldn't feel perfectly at home. And you remember what Christ said about that church, don't you? He said, I know thy works. Obviously, they didn't know. And to me, that's one of the saddest things in life, for an individual not realize what his condition is before God. And I have an idea that many people today do not realize what their condition is before God. And Jesus Christ said, and knowest not. Well, what didn't they know? Well, if you remember, they said, we're rich. We increase with goods. We have need of nothing. And that just simply meant, means this. If you met one of those brethren on the streets of Laodicea and asked, how, how are things going where you worship? Why, he would have said it couldn't be better. We're rich. We're increased with goods. We can't think of anything in this world that we need. And that make a wonderful report to the gospel advocate. Everything is just fine. And Jesus Christ said, and no, it's not. That is, you don't know your real condition before God. You're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked. And those people didn't realize it. Now, if that's not a sad situation, you pray tell me what would be one. Here are people who are wretched. They're poor. They're blind. They're naked, spiritually speaking. And they said, everything is just fine. And let me tell you something, my friend. Just the very fact that we think things are well does not necessarily mean that they are well. You can put that down. Now, these people in Laodicea, they were not cold, but they were not hot. They did not oppose the gospel, neither did they defend the gospel. They were not working in a mischief, neither were they doing any great good. They were just simply content to go on aiming at nothing and doing nothing. And they knew they stood well with the world. And they made themselves believe they stood well with God. And Carlyle called this the hypocrisy that does not know itself to be hypocritical. And so let me ask you, do you honestly believe that you can identify with the works of Jesus Christ tonight to any appreciable degree? 
Not only must we be able to identify with the works of Jesus, we must also be able to identify with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is to partake of this divine nature. How in the world could I partake of this divine nature when I don't identify with the Spirit of Jesus? In Romans 8, chapter verse 9, the Apostle Paul said, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. That's a powerful statement. Let me re repeat it. If a man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. That just simply means that a man must manifest the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But the question is, what is the Spirit of Christ? What kind of a Spirit did he manifest? Well, in Romans 8, chapter, beginning with verse 32, when uh, Philip was talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, the Bible says the place of scripture that he was reading, that the Ethiopian eunuch was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his share, so opening not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation where his life is taken from the earth? So Jesus here is referred to as a sheep or as a lamb. So to manifest the spirit of Christ, I'm going to have to manifest the spirit of a lamb or spirit of a sheep. In, in Revelation, the fifth chapter, verse five, we're told that Jesus Christ is of the line of the tribe of Judah. So here Jesus is referred to as a lion. So for me to manifest the spirit of Christ, I'm going to have to manifest the spirit of a lion. But someone may ask, when did Jesus Christ manifest the spirit of a lamb? And when did he manifest the spirit of a lamb? Well, it's my duty as, as, as a child of God to study the Bible and study the life of Christ and learn when did Jesus Christ manifest the spirit of a lamb. And if I can learn when he did it, then I know that I must do that under those circumstances. So when I study the life of Christ, we cannot find where Jesus Christ ever, on any occasion, under any circumstances, retaliated toward those people who mistreated him. Never, no, never. Now Paul says, if a man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's not of his. That means if I manifest the Spirit of Christ, I cannot retaliate toward those people who will mistreat me physically or verbally. And you know and I know that possibly one of the strongest temptations of this world is to retaliate toward those who mistreat us. And we can't do that and manifest the Spirit of Christ. Jesus Christ said that vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. I will, I will. And just as sure as a man mistreats V.P. Black, either physically or verbally, unless that man repents, he'll lose his soul. God says, I'll take vengeance on that man. But God does not permit me to do it. And I must learn that as a child of God, as a Christian, I cannot retaliate. Someone says, you don't know what he said about me, or you don't know what he did. No, I don't. But I know one thing. I know no one has ever mistreated you as Jesus Christ was mistreated and he never retaliated toward anyone. So I cannot mistreat those who mistreat me. Well, some of us wonder, Jesus Christ act like a lion? Oh, when they attack what he taught. Have you ever read Matthew, the 23rd chapter? That's the most scathing sermon they will fail from lips to any person. Why? Because they had attacked what he taught. Now, if I'm not careful, if I'm not exceedingly careful, you know what I'll do? I will just completely reverse the teachings of Jesus Christ. If you want to see me to act like a little lamb or a little sheep, just say whatever you want to about the church of the New Testament. Say whatever you want to about baptism. Say whatever you want to about the Lord's church. And what do I do? I act like a little lamb. I don't open my mouth. But if you want to see me act like a lion, then say something about me personally, that I can come out like a roaring lion. What have I done? I have completely reversed the teachings of Jesus Christ, and I'm afraid that many in the church are doing it. We must learn 
to identify with the nature of Christ, we must learn to manifest the spirit of Christ. We must learn when to act like a lion and when to act like a, a lamb. And then to identify with Jesus Christ, or the nature of Christ, we must identify with the example that he left us. In 1 Peter 2.21, Peter said, Christ also suffered, leaving us an example. We should follow his steps. Possibly there are those in this audience tonight who have children in kindergarten in the first grade. If not, you've had them there. And the child comes home with maybe his first homework. The teacher copied some perfect letters at the top of the page. And that child's homework is to copy these letters. Now, we've heard all of our life that practice makes perfect. That's just a cliche. That's just something we've heard. Practice doesn't necessarily make perfect. How in the world could practice make perfect if you're practicing something that's imperfect? No, no, no. Practice doesn't necessarily make, bring about perfection. In all probability, the worst letters of the child's copy would be on line 21 if there are 21 lines on that paper. The best letters the child would make in all probability would be the first letters the child copied. Now, why? Because when the child copied on the first line, the child was so close to the perfect example. And in all probability, if the child isn't careful when he gets down to line 21, instead of looking back to the perfect example, the child will look to line 20 and copy from the line that the child made. Therefore, the worst letters many times would be on line 21. What's the moral of that story? Simply this, the closer one stays to Jesus Christ, the easier it is to live the Christian life. And the reason it's so difficult for some members of the church to be faithful, and if this is an average congregation, and if you're working with the average congregation who are visiting with us tonight, you have problems with the people attending the services, don't you? On Sunday night and Wednesday night. Well, somebody says, what's the problem? I know what the problem is. You know what the problem is, if you think. These people drift away from Jesus Christ. If you don't remember anything else to say tonight, remember this. The closer one stays to Jesus Christ, the easier it is to live the Christian life. And the farther one gets away from Jesus Christ, the more difficult it becomes to live the Christian life. I think it's a terrible ordeal that some members have to go through to attend the service on Sunday night. I think it's a greater ordeal than that for some of them to have to attend on Wednesday night. Why is it such an ordeal for them? Because they've gotten separated from Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus Christ was in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane and those people came to arrest him and Peter was standing there by his side? And as we would say today, Peter was simply saying, you'll take him over my dead body. And Peter, Peter drew his sword and struck at that man. I think he meant to cut his head off, but evidently the man dodged and Peter cut his ear off. There isn't the least doubt in my mind but what Peter would have gladly died for Jesus Christ on that occasion. He was willing to die. But observe now, just a few hours later, when they were leading Jesus Christ from one mock trial to another, Peter got separated from Jesus and someone said, this man was with him. And Peter said, no, I don't know him. Can you imagine that? The apostle Peter, the man just a few hours ago was willing to die for Jesus. And now he's denying Jesus. The second time someone says he was with him. Peter says, no, I don't know him. The third time they, they accused Peter of being with him. Peter began to curse and swear, no, I don't know the man. Let me ask you this. Do you believe if Peter had followed Jesus in the Pilate's judgment hall and had been standing by, Jesus, by the side of Jesus 
when they were mistreating him, spitting in his face, abusing him, calling him every mean, hateful, ugly name that you can imagine. Do you believe that the apostle Peter would have denied him if he'd been standing by his side? No, a thousand times no. He got separated from Jesus and then he denied Jesus. Now let me tell you, my friends, we'd better stay as close to Jesus Christ as we can in living the Christian life. And the closer one stays to Jesus, the easier it is to live the Christian life. The farther one gets away from Jesus Christ, it becomes more difficult, more difficult, and then when they get way out here, they completely forsake the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to identify with the example that Christ left us. And then we are to identify with the sufferings of Jesus. Now this is the most difficult part of this lesson because I've never suffered physically for living the Christian life. I may have suffered some verbal persecution, but never any physical persecution. And I doubt if anyone in this auditorium has ever suffered any physical persecution for living the Christian life. But let me ask you, have we forgotten that there have been those who gave their lives rather than announce the church of the New Testament? Have we forgotten this? Have we forgotten that people have been whipped and stoned and persecuted and shot through with arrows and beaten till the flesh tore loose from the bones of their body because of their faith in Jesus Christ? Have we forgotten these things? Have we forgotten that many of those early Christians when they were persecuted would join their hands, march into the arena, facing those roaring lions rather than announce the church of the New Testament? And you ask why? Because they were sustained by the promise that Christ made great is your reward in heaven. History tells us of one man who was a faithful Christian who was being burned to the stake. They'd wrapped it about in some like burlap sack soaked in some kind of oil. And when this tormentor started toward him to set fire to him, the Christian said to the tormentor, why don't you fill up my pulse and see if it is not calmer than yours? I ask you, how could one talk like that in the face of death? I can tell you because he was sustained by that promise that Christ made. Great is your reward in heaven. That's what motivated those men to give their lives for the church. That's what motivated those people to remain faithful to God. And until we realize that there's a great reward in heaven waiting for us, we'll never be motivated as we should to live the Christian life. One of those early Christians knocked down the ditch and spit upon and said, take that, you disciple of Christ. He gets up, brushes his clothes off, looks at his tormentor, and says, I, I could take something a hundred times worse than that just to be called a disciple of Christ. Is that the way we feel about following Christ? Just to wear that name of Christ? Just to be a disciple of Christ? It may have been for this reason when Paul wrote this letter, when he said, well, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of... of Gideon of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, put to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection, yea, others received cruel trials of scourging and mocking, yea, of bonds and imprisonments, they were stoned, they were sown asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword. 
They wandered in sheepskins and goatskins. They were afflicted, destitute, and tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Have we forgotten these things? Those are things that Christians have endured in order to live the Christian life. And here we are with our fine buildings, our padded pews, a wall-to-wall carpet, and in some congregations have now even stopped having gospel meetings. Yea, they say they can't get their own members interested enough, concerned about the lost condition of the world, to take just a few nights out of the year to send some special efforts to try to convert people to Christ. And we talk about loving God. I'm afraid, my friends, that many of us have deceived ourselves in living the Christian life. Read Hebrews 11, chapter 8, verse 32, the verse I've just read to you. Read what those early Christians endured. And then you think of the churches we have today. And all the division, confusion, chaos in the Lord's church. It's a shame. I remember years ago, one of us good Fried Hardin, Brother Briggins would tell us, that possibly the greatest thing to happen to the Lord's church would be a great persecution. I don't want to see a persecution. I'm sure you don't want to see a persecution. But in all probability, a persecution would drive us closer to God and closer to Christ. It may be we have everything too convenient. It may be everything is too easy in this life. Maybe we just never realize just what's involved in living the Christian life. And now in the conclusion... How will these rewards be given? Now, I'm going to read some verses to you now that I either want you to write down, I want you to underscore, because of some of this unscriptural teaching that's being done, even to some in the church today, talking about man being saved by grace only, and others being saved by faith only, I never know, never know which one they mean. Is it by faith only? Is it by grace only? One time they say it's faith only. Well, if it's faith only, then that excludes everything else. If it's grace only, that excludes everything else. So why do they mean grace only? Why do they mean faith only? So I want to read you some verse how these rewards will be given out. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, in verse 27, when the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, he shall reward every man according to his works. In 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, verse 8, Paul said, Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. In Revelation 22 and verse 12, Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give to every man according as his works may be. And that's exactly how it's going to be on the day of judgment. We're going to be rewarded. We're going to receive this crown according to our works. That's what the Bible says. Oh, but someone says, Brother Black, do you know about Matthew the 20th chapter? Yes, I know all about Matthew the 20th chapter. About this man entered the vineyard, the 11th hour, and sees much as the man the first hour. That isn't talking about the rewards in heaven. That's talking about the those people we talked about last night, the Hamites and the Japhethites, that those people who had not been God's chosen people, and that the time would come that when the church would be set up, that they could come in, that is, in this last age, and have their sins remitted just as the Jews had their sins remitted. That's what Matthew, the 20th chapter, is talking about, and not discussing the rewards in heaven at all. But the Bible teaches we're going to receive a reward according to our works. Let me give you an illustration. Can you, in your wildest imagination, Make yourself believe that if the thief was saved, and I believe he was saved, well, somebody said, do you believe he was baptized? No, I don't believe he was baptized. 
Well, do you believe he was not baptized? No, I don't believe he was not baptized. Well, somebody, what do you believe about it? If you don't believe he was baptized, you don't believe he was not baptized, what do you believe? I don't believe anything about it. How faith is based upon evidence. There's no evidence he was baptized. There's no evidence he was not baptized. So I don't believe anything about it. But whether he was baptized or not has nothing to do with it because he lived and died under a different age, not in this Christian age. Well, we will assume that he was saved. Can you? I repeat, in your wildest imagination, make yourself believe that this thief in heaven would receive the same reward as the Apostle Paul, who was whipped, stoned, persecuted, and finally was beheaded because of love for Jesus Christ and dedicated him? No, a thousand times, no. I don't believe a thing like that. And these church members think they're going to get by on doing nothing and then go to heaven to be rewarded as the Apostle Paul. You're going to see some of the worst deceived people that ever lived. The Bible says man will receive his reward according to his works. That's reading the Apostle Paul, no doubt, right through the church of Corinth, said, Be ye steadfast, unmoved, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Can you believe that that thief in heaven received the same reward as those early Christians who were fed to the lions, who were persecuted, beaten to death, boiling lead poured down their throat, gave their entire life to God, and that the thief will see the same word. No, I don't believe a word of that. Well, someone said, are you saying, Brother Black, to be unhappy people in heaven? No, no, there won't be any unhappy people in heaven. But listen to me carefully now. Every person will enjoy heaven to the fullest of his capacity. And some people have a greater capacity to enjoy heaven than others. Just suppose, for instance, that there should be an opera in Aniston tonight. And Brother Eddie says to me, Brother Black, I, I enjoy singing. And I detect the way he directs it. He enjoys it. And so I'm going to the opera night. And we will assume that Brother Smith has taught opera. We'll assume that he's an opera singer. So he asked me to go with him. Well, possibly being a southern gentleman, I would say, yes, I'll, I'll go with you. And so we sit there. And I'm sure that somehow I would enjoy it. But when this lady comes out and, and sings in a way that to me she's in terrible pain and she's expressing her pain and he sits there and he says, that's the sweetest music I've ever heard in my life. Now why? Because he has a greater capacity to understand it than I have and therefore in heaven some people have a greater capacity to enjoy heaven than others. That's the reason we should do all that we can. That's the reason we should strive diligently to serve God. That's the reason we should strive all of our lives to become a partaker of the nature of Jesus Christ so that when we get to heaven, that we'll enjoy heaven to the fullest capacity. No, there'll be no people unhappy in heaven. But I repeat, some people have a greater capacity to enjoy heaven than others. And now, what, what, what must one do to, to receive this great reward that Christ spoke of? The Bible plainly teaches that one must believe on Christ, that he must repent of his sins, that he must confess his faith in Christ, he must be baptized into the body of Christ. And that's what people did 2,000 years ago, and we can't change that. That's just as binding today as it was on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus Christ when Peter told those people what to do in order to be saved. And after one is baptized into Christ, Christ wants this person to live the Christian life to the very best of his ability. And when he does that... And when it comes a time that he must cross over the river death, he can truthfully say, I won't have to cross Jordan alone. The Lord will be there to meet me. 
And he'll say, great is your reward in heaven. If you should die as you're living now, do you honestly, sincerely believe that the Lord will say to you, great is your reward in heaven? If you're subject to an invitation anyway, we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.